Welcome to EDI on BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at Business in Vancouver, and we're broadcasting today from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. My co-host today is Berinder Buller, Principal of Mainland Strategies. He previously served in various senior government roles, including as Director of Policy to the Premier of British Columbia. He brings two decades of experience in public affairs, government relations, and community and stakeholder engagement to his work as a strategic advisor. Berinder, welcome to the show. It's great to have you join as a co-host. Thanks for having me, Haley, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. As am I, and we're going to be speaking with Michael Daw, Managing Director of Strive Recruitment. The company works with a range of organizations from local businesses based in Vancouver to Fortune 500 companies. And he joins us today to talk about the intersection of EDI and recruitment. Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks, Haley. Happy to be here. We're living through a time where there is so much change. And I want to start by asking you, how much change are you seeing in the recruitment industry right now? Yeah, tremendous amounts of change. Um, You know, we've seen a real seismic shift in in obviously the social climate in the last couple of years, as well as um, the recovery with with the pandemic, um, creating a bit of a labor and skill shortage right across uh, the country. So um, there's definitely been a tremendous amount of change uh, that we're seeing, specifically um, with diversity and inclusion. And those seismic shifts have been, like I said, a product of a lot of the social events that have taken place in 2019, 20, and even 21. Um, but uh, people, I think, were, were given a lot of confidence to hold their beliefs to a higher regard. And, and in, in present day, we're now seeing 80 to 90 percent of of individuals who are job seekers who um, place workplace diversity as a, as a real important factor when choosing their next role. Michael, uh, you touched on diversity and recruitment a little bit there and, and how it's changed. Um, are there particular sectors that are doing a better job of uh, diversity and equity uh, recruitment? Um, are there emerging sectors like tech that don't need that EDI uh, push and, and may just sort of be with it? And how are some of the traditional sectors, resource sectors and construction sectors, changing their recruitment practices? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not so sure if it's sector driven, but definitely categorically, like where we see equity, diversity and inclusion um, have the most sophisticated teams and departments are definitely with large public organizations. And, and there's a lot of technology companies that that do fit in that category as well, especially the unicorns. Um, you know, a local example of that is Hootsuite who has a strong social footprint. Um, But I think um, when we talk about technology organizations, they're in their own way paved a little bit of a path in in ED&I, and that is kind of having a remote workplace. Um, I think they were the pioneers of that in terms of industry. They were working from home before it was cool to work from home, uh, so to speak. But in that sense, they opened up their their talent market quite a bit. Um, It was not confined to a certain geographical area and um, opened up opportunities for those uh, who needed to be, you know, more closer to home or at home, physically challenged and disabled people, as well as, you know, parents, um, inclusive of women that did that. So I think in their own way, technology has done that, but there's, there's definitely a long way to go um, as it is still, especially on the back end, on the developer side, a, a male-dominated industry. Um, speaking of, of construction and, and other male-dominated industries and manufacturing and and trades is always a hot topic. 
of how we are going to solve the skill shortage, especially locally here in BC. Um, we've come a long way uh, in terms of having being more inclusive. You'll see a lot of trade schools as well as WCB who have catered their talent brand marketing towards uh, women in the last five years. Um, and that's has been a, um, a strategy that, that has kind of worked out. You know, trades uh, people are now inclusive, have about a 30% uptick in women over the last five years. I mean, it still only makes up about 10 or 12% of total trades people across Canada, but uh, the needle is moving, maybe just not as fast as, as we'd like it to. Michael, you mentioned uh, public versus private, uh, touched upon it. Uh, we've seen that governments are, are mandating uh, public uh, corporations and boards, uh, things like the 50-30 challenge, and we've seen public boards come up with uh, equity, diversity, inclusion uh, mandates. Um, How is the private sector faring? Are they, are they uh, pulling themselves towards where public corporations are being mandated? Um, are they getting ahead of the curve? Yeah, I'd say that um, certain organizations are. Uh, you know, certain private organizations who view uh, equity, diversity, inclusion as a social fabric of their organization um, are, are definitely uh, including that in their talent brand and their recruitment marketing. You know, Lush is a great example of that, um, who puts that first and foremost in, you know, when an organization is 10,000 plus in terms of employees, they're almost need to have a really sophisticated and uh, effective EDI policy because these these organizations are hiring thousands of people each year. And uh, as a stat, you know, previously that I mentioned about 80 to 90% of job seekers having this as an important factor, you're, you're going to see it catch up with a lot of other um, private organizations and, and hopefully transcend in the, in the SME space, small to medium sized enterprises. I think that the fact that we have a labor shortage, the fact that in certain sectors, employees have a little more power and they can choose their place of work, I think really underscores the importance of having an inclusive policy, especially if employees have choice in terms of where they work. And I'm curious in terms of companies coming to you, if they're asking, help us with this recruitment strategy, help us with X, Y, Z, what are they looking for? And what are some of the steps you take them through to build a policy that's ultimately attractive to employees? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Haley. I think, you know, as the social and economic pressures kind of converge, as what you said, um, you know, there is, and, and, and like, like I mentioned before, the, the ability to choose from a wider talent pool, which, which the pandemic has brought us is, as now remote workplaces are more prevalent than ever before, has allowed us access to a wider talent pool. But the way that we do that is, 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 is very unique. So um, if, and when clients do ask us to uh, recruit an executive search for a high-level role and still have, as, as Brenda had mentioned, a 50-30 rule, whereby they'd like to have um, a certain percentage of their executive team to be either women, people of color, or equity-deserving people, we, we carry out a completely different search. And what that means is that we use outside and third-party tools to rid any bias uh, with candidates. And uh, we do that by, you know, sending uh, certain, certain examples of that. We send resumes of candidates without their names, without cities that they've worked in, without schools that they've been to, um, to do as best as we can to kind of rid that bias. And that, that's asked by companies who have a really strong um, social footprint, as well as a, a needy and I policy that, that, that requires their recruiters to, 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 to take part in these type of processes. Michael, one thing that's always driven me nuts is when uh, companies uh, 
say they want to hire diverse candidates, but they simply can't find them. And it's, you know, refreshing to say, here you say that that's changing. But um, do you see organizations doing a good job of explicitly recruiting for diverse candidates? You mentioned on that a little bit. Um, do you still feel it's still a tick box for some of them that bias still exists? And what would be your advice for employers and maybe potential employees looking to raise their profile and, and get an opportunity at some of these leadership and executive positions that come from uh, diverse backgrounds? Yeah, no, it, it's, I think that it's bugged me as well, because, you know, having been in the industry uh, for 15 years and viewing thousands of applications and resumes and interviews, I can tell you, you're, you're five times more likely to have come across um, someone who's equity deserving uh, rather than someone who's a quote unquote culture fit at your organization. So for some companies, yeah, I, I do definitely do say that it is still a box that is being checked as opposed um, to having an effective and successful strategy surrounding it. Um, we're not at a place where I can say that, you know, we've come a long way. Um, clients still have a very specific candidate profile that they look for, which sometimes includes, you know, the schools that they went to or, or even the firms that they worked at uh, prior to coming which um, is, 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 doesn't exactly create uh, a bit of progression when it comes to ED&I. Um, I think that employers that are not currently uh, employing a, an ED&I strategy need to look to those who have and who have been for a while. While I prefaced with Haley that the seismic shift has occurred over the last couple of years in the realm of ED&I, um, there are certain organizations who have been for doing this for, for five, seven years the big five banks are um, a great example of that, that they are one of the ones who have been doing this from, since 2015. RBC does an incredible job at, um, with their EDI strategy. So my advice to employers was to look at someone who's done it really well, and I give you an example of that. And for employees who are interested in becoming a part of an organization which really values equity, diversity, and inclusion, there are so many resources in present day which uh, allow you to seek out who these companies are. Um, you know, uh, there, there's a uh, Canada's most diverse employers list every year. And um, there are some wonderful organizations who are vying for that title every year. And I believe it's a list of about 30 or 50 organizations every year that, that get that title. It's a great place to start. Um, there's a lot of content and communication that are, are that is, of revolving around ED&I and thought leaders on LinkedIn who also would be great people to connect with in order to get themselves involved in the right communities. Those are really great tips. And I want to ask you for companies that are hopefully listening to this show and thinking, okay, I, I need to get a policy in place. I need to change things. Can you walk us through some of the aspects of recruitment that might be standard today when it comes to diversity and inclusion, but we're not standard a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? I mean, where's the bar set and what should all companies really be doing at this stage? Yeah, good, good question. I think that, um, you know, when it comes to recruitment marketing, uh, I think there are certain organizations who do a wonderful job of incorporating equity, diversity, and inclusion in their talent brand. Um, and um, there are others who, who don't do that. But I think for starters, you know, I come back to ridding bias out of the recruitment process. I think that is a single most um, influential aspect of, 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 of small to medium to even large organizations that they can implement quite easily into their recruitment process. 
um, that will allow them to do that. So, so I mentioned certain tools about, you know, writing names and, 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 and previous universities off their resumes, um, but also having standardized interview processes. You know, we have uh, a, a, this ability as interviewers to really connect with the people in front of us. And sometimes that is elevating our unconscious bias. If so-and-so, you know, had lived in a certain neighborhood, went to a certain school, did a certain company, and we try to relate to that and gain a rapport, that, that, that is really elevating our unconscious bias. So standardizing interview questions and asking them the same way for each individual candidate is incredibly critical. Also having a bit of a, a rubric, a scorecard as to, you know, how they actually performed in the interview. Um, because what we're trying to do is assess whether or not this individual can do the job. Not necessarily do they meet the candidate profile that I know in my head that I'm, I'm used to seeing do that job. So there's a big difference in that. And, and that way it becomes less subjective. Um, you know, I think candidates, job seekers are, are always really frustrated when the feedback they get was they weren't a culture fit. We don't, we don't really know what that means. And that's some of the things that we're trying to rid um, in the recruitment process and being a little bit more succinct with our feedback and understanding um, you know, that there are multiple different profiles and different types of candidates that can be really, really successful at certain jobs. We, we just have to do a better job at, at assessing uh, and ascertaining those different profiles. I mean, it seems so straightforward and basic, and it's kind of surprising that, you know, a quantitative process or baseline often doesn't exist. I'm curious if you ever come up against companies that say, no, we don't want to do it that way. I mean, maybe it's a bit of an issue if they're coming to you, they're obviously open to some extent in looking for advice, but are there companies that no, they, they want to rely on sort of qualitative analysis of people who are coming in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 not a a change that's going to happen overnight, right? Where uh, even I, I gave myself an ex as an example, being in the industry for many many years, you where recruiters are kind of relied upon for their quote unquote gut feeling, or their spidey senses, or whatever other kind of uh, metaphor you want to use to to be able to assess a candidate. But again, this is just rising our unconscious bias. Um, you know, we've. And it's something, like I said, that categorically speaking, will take a tremendous amount of time to change. And as easy as it sounds, it, it sometimes isn't, um, as we are in the people business. So we, we, we tend to use our uh, intangibles and our heart, our gut feelings, our previous experience to make a certain decision, as opposed to using, as you mentioned, quantitative analysis or, or scorecards. Michael, we've heard uh, economists, uh, business leaders, government leaders use the word C-session uh, a lot. Uh, and earlier this year, RBC had a report out which indicated uh, more than half a million women who left the workforce during the pandemic will not return back to work. Um, at the same time, about 200,000 slipped into uh, long-term unemployment. And we know that women of color are even more affected. Um, what can we do to ensure that women and women of color are, are get those opportunities at executive levels and leadership positions? And how could they be supported to uh, move on up the ranks of uh, recruitment? Yeah, that, that's a good question. The, the she session um, phenomenon, I guess, that took place last year was fairly discouraging, I think, for, for a lot of folks, uh, because as you mentioned, women of color were definitely affected. New immigrants were affected. Um, that were women as well as women who were in their 20s, which is uh, significantly 
which is troubling, right? Um, as they make up a significant part of our future workforce here in in the city. So um, I, th I think it, it's definitely a setback uh, from the the ascendance that was taking place with with women and women of color. Um, I think the silver lining was the convergence of sort of, as I mentioned before, this convergence of the social pressures being put on companies to be more diverse um, and to have inclusion strategies, as well as the pandemic allowing for much more of a remote workforce, opening up talent pools right across North America has allowed us to, in the she recovery, if you will, come back with uh, some, some positive data forcing us in, in, a, in a direction where we were seeing much more uh, of, of women returning to work because of these kind of events that have taken place. But an example of that is, is, is in present day in 2021, KPMG Canada has more women in leadership roles than they do men. And we're talking about large big four public practice accounting firm. Traditionally, this has never been the case. Um, that should be a really encouraging sign. And I think what KPMG Canada does really well is, as I mentioned before, they incorporate um, these women of color in their talent brand. So what we're, when you ask, what, what can we employers be doing more? Look at organizations like that who are celebrating executive women in color in their talent brand, in their recruitment marketing. Um, this gives those women and uh, women of color and women in their 20s the idea and a clear cut path to that same success. And I, I think yeah, that goes a long, long way. I can tell you that when we are speaking with passionate and driven women or even women of color as candidates, um, one of the first things that they do end up doing is going on LinkedIn or asking us what the executive team looks like. Are there other women there? Are there other women of color who have progressed into these leadership and executive roles? Because I know that that might open up opportunities for me uh, as well. I think that's really interesting. And I'm curious if you're noticing that for other groups that are perhaps historically underrepresented on executive teams is going on LinkedIn, looking to see what the history is, looking to see the makeup, sort of a common way of employees doing their research nowadays. And, and a second part to that would be, what should a company that is not very diverse, but trying to address that, what can they do to then attract those people if they're looking at their leadership team that is not diverse? Right, no, it's a good question. I. Um... I can give you an example, like Lush is, is incredible at incorporating, you know, their people and the very social fabric of their organization in their talent brand. You'll see um, a variety of bodies, genders, sexualities, uh, abilities in their marketing campaigns. And many times Lush is, is, is well known for having their own employees in those campaigns. Um, that goes a long way. Uh, you, you mentioned other groups that might look at those and say, well, okay, you know, if there are people that are like me in those um, executive or leadership positions, I feel like, you know, this, this company is a put of, uh, again, a sophisticated and, and an effective strategy around diversity and inclusion that I'd like to be a part of. So sometimes you don't even need to go onto LinkedIn to see who those individuals are. Um, their marketing campaigns on, on other social channels, Instagram, uh, namely, will, will showcase uh, who they are as, as people and, and effectively who they are as an organization and what's important to them. Michael, uh, Canada often gets described as the most multicultural country in the world. And, you know, it's still amazing that we have to have this EDI conversation where that descriptor um, describes our country. But looking within Canada, um, 
and the major cities in Canada be it Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. Where would you rank Vancouver? How do we compare against Toronto? How do we compare against Montreal on, on the EDI scale? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I don't know if this is surprising or not, but Vancouver actually probably uh, subjectively ranks the highest um, amongst those three cities. I would say that Toronto and Calgary kind of finish uh, after that. Calgary's um, kind of also been forced to be very <laughs> inclusive because they've had talent shortages through the oil and gas for years. And they brought in engineers from various parts of the world, and they have been doing so for a very long time, which is kind of organically developed a bit of a DNI strategy for a lot of those organizations. Uh, Toronto, being the sheer size that is it that it is, um, and probably the most you know multicultural uh, metropolis city in Vancouver, if you will, uh, kind of ranks right in there as well. But with, with Montreal, I, guess, I think you mentioned as one of them is kind of trailing a little bit further behind. I'm curious, Michael, it feels as though businesses and business leaders are talking more and more about equity, diversity, and inclusion, but is there anything that we're not talking about enough? Anything you or other recruitment professionals are thinking about, you're coming across, but it hasn't necessarily broken into the broader conversations we're having about EDI? Um, yeah, I think that, I think there's a couple things there that, uh, you know, as, as recruitment professionals, we sometimes um, do get frustrated. One is I think that, uh, you know, the acceptance for a lot of really skilled and talented um, professionals who are from outside of Canada are, are still having a very tough time getting into uh, a lot of these organizations that we see here locally. And again, it goes back to not fitting that candidate profile benchmark that we have as, as a part of our unconscious bias. Um, that's really frustrating. I feel like for a lot of recruitment professionals like myself and a lot of people in the agency world who see a lot of great talent coming across the board, but yet do not uh, kind of hit the mark with most organizations that we work with. Um, so I, I think that the, the education is, is, is really not there. Um, just yet in terms of what kind of skills and at, uh, attributes and success they could bring. But um, the other aspect is probably that, that frustrates us a little bit is, is, is companies who have ED&I committees. However, they're, they're simply um, just not at that same kind of uh, sophisticated level that, you know, they should be at. And, and it's more of a box being checked and certain people of color or women who get appointed to these quote unquote diversity committees. So they're able to check that box. Um, and then when our, our, our candidates kind of get into the organization, they realize and they can see through the fact that uh, it is definitely not one of the, the, the critical, um, I guess, uh, pieces of fabric within the organization. Michael, could you uh, share with us when uh, potential uh, employees come to you or employers come to you, uh, some of your pet peeves uh, for both? Um, <laughs> how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> Is that a whole separate podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a bit of a different one uh, altogether. Um, no, I, I think that you know we're we're in a uh, a really unique time in the job market. Um, you know, we're coming off a pandemic. However, unemployment uh, rates are, are 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 lower than they they have been after coming off. And we're still finding uh, employers who have a tremendous amount of uh, excuses when not hiring candidates, not acting very effectively, and not really uh, adhering to kind of the, 
as, as Brenner mentioned, a lot of the organizations that had that 50-30 rule for the sheer need for people yesterday, um, I think that that's one of the biggest frustrations we come across clients. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join our show today. I think it has given our listeners lots of insight, tips, things to start thinking about in terms of recruitment and EDI. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Haley. It's good chatting with you and Brinder. Thanks, Michael. And thank Brinder, you, Haley. Thank you for joining. First time as co-host, hopefully not the last for both of you, actually. It'd be great to have you back. Look forward to doing it again. Thank you. Joining us today, Michael Daw, Managing Director of Strive Recruitment, and my co-host today, Brinder Buller, Principal of Mainland Strategies. This has been EDI on BIV. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks so much for joining us. We publish new episodes of this particular show every Tuesday, and we're back after a brief hiatus. So join us soon every Tuesday for new episodes of our show.